Welcome to Sheer Clarity, the show that will teach you about leadership by attraction, building self-awareness, and how to develop exceptional self-management abilities that will help you become more reflective, more open, more trusting, and more engaging with the people who matter to you most. In other words, make you a better leader. Head on over to SheerClarity.com where you can learn more, subscribe to the show for free, and connect on social media. And now, here's your host, Jay Kevin McHugh. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Sheer Clarity. This is Jay Kevin McHugh, your host for episode number 11. I have decided that I wanted to share with the audience this episode one of the articles that I've saved forever and ever and ever. I've used it a hundred times and It's an article by an extremely well-known professor at Harvard, Clayton Christensen. The article itself is actually extremely well-known as well. It's all over and been used and reprinted a million times. There's books and articles. By the way, I'll put links to all of this into the podcast website page. But for now, let's just start with the idea that I got inspired recently talking to a client when we asked the question, which is the title of the article. And I thought it would make a great episode. And here's the question and the title of the article. It's called, How Will You Measure Your Life? The author is Clayton Christensen. We're going to talk about it today. We'll talk about its impact on leadership, on meaning, and on purpose. We're just going to have fun with it because I think it's going to have a lot to offer all of you who are listening. Before I do that, I want to introduce our producer, Matthew Passy. Matthew, how will you measure your life, my friend? I think at this point it's going to be based on the success of this particular podcast, so no pressure. <laughs> no pressure to you, no pressure to the audience. No. <laughs> you know, you just flip the pressure back. That was well done. <laughs> that was well done. I turned it all on you, and then you flipped it right back at me. I like that. That's a good skill, the flip back It's skill. my elementary school negotiation tactic of I am rubber, you are glue. So it's, it's very effective. <laughs> yes. And I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> All right. Well, what do you think? Shall we start? By the way, I'd be curious when in your world, you're, well, I say a young guy. It's all relative, isn't it? You're in your mid-30s, give or take. Does that question have meaning to you? Do you ever think about that? How will you measure your life? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's similar to our last discussion of imposter syndrome. I think this question is another one that comes up for me quite often when thinking about my life professionally and personally and routinely discussed when sitting down to chat with a therapist and get other help. Maybe I don't say it exactly how will I measure my life, but I sort of view it as a legacy question. What will my life mean or what will I leave behind via the life that I've led? So not quite the same wording, but I think in the same spirit of it. Got it. Well, just so I can tell the audience, the reason this article had resonated so much for me is because it's very, very in line with what I'm doing as an executive coach and what I personally believe. I mean, I've spent the last 26 years in this world of CEOs. There's lots of power there's lots of wealth, there's lots of exposure, reputation, there's just so much going on in this particular group of people, so much responsibility. And over the years, and I've been a part of it myself, I've been focused on so much of 
my meaning around my money and my power and my reputation, all this stuff. So along comes this article by this professor who is beloved at Harvard, Clayton Christensen, and he ends up having a class with them at one point, and he's noticing the same thing, that his career and the way he's developed it, the way he's spent it, he remembers his own focus. And when you're at Harvard Business School, pretty much everybody's there for the same motivation. I'm going to go into business, I'm going to make a lot of money, and I'm going to do deals, and I'm going to this, and I'm going to that. That's kind of how we're wired. As a corollary, I'm just reading a book now. It's The Road to Character by a guy named David Brooks. And in the opening of the book, he talks about what he feels are two kinds of virtue lists. One is what he calls the resume virtues, and the other one is called the eulogy virtues. He's basically saying the resume virtue is, where did I go to school? How much money do I make? What are my achievements? What are my awards? And our entire education system, our entire cultural system is all oriented towards being able to write a great resume, the virtues of money and power, success and performance, advancement, achievement. The eulogy virtues are the virtues of what do you want to be remembered for? And he said, Almost invariably, everyone would say the eulogy virtues are far more important. What am I doing and how do I want to be remembered by people? Not what is my list of incredible success and achievements. And he said, ironically, though, we're a culture focused on the resume. And that's what we're all about. So there's no emphasis on the development of character. There's no emphasis on the development of how do I end up with a life at the end, that people at my funeral will talk about what I meant to them and what my life was worth. And so all the things I want to be remembered for, so I'm not focused on that. And I think that's kind of where Clayton Christensen was back in 2010 when he wrote this article, How Will You Measure Your Life? I'll give you the essence of what this article says at the very, very beginning, he's talking about an anecdote, a story that he had when he was asked by Andy Grove at Intel to come speak to his technology group about disruptive technology. And he said, I want you to stop in and I want you to talk to us. We'll give you 10 minutes. And Christensen immediately said, there's no way I can do this in 10 minutes. I need at least 30 he argued for that. Andy Grove gave him that. And he shows up for this talk. And sure as shooting, Andy Grove says, we've had some changes. We only have 10 minutes. And he goes, that's exactly what I didn't want to do. So all he said was, look, I really need this full 30. I got to explain my model. I got to let you know what disruptive technology looks like and where it's going. And all he said was, look, I know all about your model. Just tell me what it means for Intel. And he ended up saying, look, all I can tell you is this story about Nucor and all these other steel mini mills and how they'd been attacking the low end of the market. They've been going after steel reinforcing bars, rebar as they called it, and they later moved up to the high end undercutting the traditional steel mills. And when it was all done, Andy Gross says, I got it. Now I get it. So what it means for me at Intel is, and then he laid out crystal clear what the future was for the company's strategy and how they were going to go to the bottom of the market to launch a Celeron processor. 
That's what he did. I mean, Andy Grove got the model, knew it, didn't want to know. But when he heard the example, his brain immediately went to, that's a damn good strategy. Here we are, Intel, we're at the top of the market, premium provider. Let's go down to the bottom of the market and crush it. And that's been part of their success. And Christensen took away this sort of aha moment for himself. And he said, what I realized was I never really got to telling him what to think. All I did was gave him information that was teaching him to think. I didn't tell him what to think. I just gave him information. I sort of taught him how to think. I gave him examples. He made the decision on his own. And so this is a powerful part of leadership when you're motivating a group of people. It's not about telling them what to do. It's about helping them find their solutions. It's about helping them gather information and helping them get to the point. So he ends up having that story as the beginning of the article. And what he now took away from that was this influence on him was that from that day forward, when people were asking him, okay, what should I do? He avoided answering the question. He's just turns it around and starts asking them questions, and then they answer those questions more insightfully than he could have possibly. Then that expanded to what his ultimate aha moment was, is I have all these incredibly smart people at Harvard Business School who are coming in here oriented to making money, an impact in the world, a professional business, and all the places, all the MBAs from Harvard go and do. And what he finally said was, I want you guys to pay attention to something else. I need you to have answers to three questions. One is, how can you be sure you're going to be happy in your career? And how can you be sure that the relationship you have with your spouse and your family are going to be an enduring source of happiness? And how can you stay out of jail? (laughs) (laughs) And then he ends up having people write long, long papers with their answers to these questions. And what he's trying to point out is something that I'm trying to point out with my clients While we can be focused on all the things that the world wants us to focus on, basically power and money, power and money, power and money, that is not what you're ever going to be remembered for. What the article talks about is how you can get to all the stuff that you're there to do in your career, in your position, to move the needle, to make money and to get shareholders happy, all that good stuff. But how are you going to spend your time on this earth being happily fulfilled, not by your money and your career? How are you going to be fulfilled by focusing on your family, on your relationships and your personal well-being? That's what matters, which ties back in to David Brooks and the road to character and his eulogy sort of virtues. What is the story you're trying to write about how you want to be remembered and what you want people to say about you in your funeral? And I have really hard time keeping my clients focused on those questions. It was something I was going to ask you about earlier, because I think the way you framed it before, there's two ways that we characterize ourselves, either by our resume or by who we are as a character. And I think when somebody asks you to tell them about yourself, 
you have two choices, the same ones that you just mentioned. You can tell them what you've done or you can tell them who you are. And telling people what you've done is easier, I think, to express than who you are because who you are feels like just bragging. It feels conceited and egotistical because no one's going to say, well, I'm kind of a jerk. Yeah, a couple of people will, but nobody's going to not paint themselves in a positive picture when being asked to describe themselves. And when you talk about what you've done, you're essentially laying out facts versus trying to form an opinion, which is probably why so many of us, myself, I catch this all the time, job interviews or something like that, like, tell me about yourself. I start with, well, as it relates to what we're talking about, I did this, I did this, I studied this, and then I did this. It feels factual and less braggy than, well, I'm a nice guy. I'm hardworking. I'm funny. That just feels like, well, who told you you were funny? Well, if you end up in an interview, I've said this to many of my friends who are doing this interview process, and we actually mentioned it when we did one of the episodes on trust. We said there were two branches. There's competence and there's character. And so if you're in an interview, you need to talk about both. You need to talk about all the things you talk about, your competencies, your skills, your achievements, and everything else. But if you're sitting there talking to someone who's trying to size you up, I would definitely make sure you talk about your importance of your values because that says important stuff about you. It's important to me. I consider myself a man of integrity, a man of character. I'm known, my reputational brand is as an honest person, as a straight shooter, right? And all of the things that come to the second part of this, when you take the article, you should never be afraid to communicate to anyone, how are you measuring your life? How are you going to measure? What's your criteria for what we would call success? And if you just focus on your power, money, and work achievements, while it may be worth the moment, it will not be something you're remembered for. That's not what they're going to talk about at your eulogy. He was incredible. I suppose that brings up a different problem, which is if you lay out what you think your values are, and then you compare that to what you are currently doing you'll probably find that they might not align as, as as well as you think they do. And then you're back to having imposter syndrome problems. Mm. So let me ask you a question. Tell me a little bit what you mean. So if your values don't align with what you're doing, I need to know how that's possible. Just explain that a little bit more for a second. Well, so like I've always thought that I would be someone who would have a positive impact on the world, make a change, help people, right some of the wrongs. And then I found myself in a position where I had to work. I had to come up with a way to build an income. And in doing so, that's not to say that I don't enjoy what I do and I don't help my clients and they're not fulfilled by the outcome. But I can't say that what I do on a day-to-day basis is the same as those values and goals that I want to strive to. But it's also tough to walk away from what is important income, 
not because I'm looking to get rich and be famous in doing this, but because it provides for my family and it ensures that the lights stay on and, you know, we stay in the house and there's food on the table and things like that. And I don't think this is unique to me. I think there are a lot of folks who get stuck in a position where they want more out of life, but they are trapped in a spot that they are afraid to walk away from because then other priorities will not be taken care of. Is it possible that you could be selling out because you have to make money and you couldn't actually go out and save the world or be a missionary or save the whales or do something socially? Like, I can't go do these incredible things because actually I have to do the more mundane things like pay the mortgage. I don't love the term selling out, even though it's probably accurate. I mean, I don't even think it's necessarily selling out. I think it's just, especially in the world that we are in today, where more is expected of us, our productivity has to be higher and our expenses are ever growing in all facets of life. Nothing is getting cheaper. Everything is getting more expensive. I think many of us are just squeezed to the point of it would be great to go, for example, save the whales, but while I'm saving the whales, I'm not doing something that's going to put food on the table. And so I don't think it's necessarily selling out. Maybe at a higher level, it's easy to say selling out if you're a little bit more comfortable and you're just seeking more money because you aspire to a higher level of wealth. But for so many people who I think have the desire to do more and do better and do good in the world, they're trapped by what will keep things satisfied. And either you run out of time. I mean, I work close to 70, 80 hours a week. And what little time I have left, I want to spend with my kids. I could sacrifice some of the work time to do this, but then other places might suffer. And I'm certainly not going to sacrifice the family time to go save the whales because my family is important. So I think that's a little bit of a different look at, as opposed to being a sellout. It's tough for people to break away from that feeling. Yeah. And as it relates to sellout, it was more of a hyperbole than it was <laughs> an indictment. <laughs> but here's what I'm sensing. There is a range at which people have idealism. There's an idealistic orientation and all the things that my heart goes towards. But when I actually come to the world and I come to work, I'm limited in certain ways to having an impact unless I was born with a trust fund and I have $100 million and I don't have to work. I'm enjoying this part of the conversation because the article comes to application here. What I'm hearing you work out is, look, the practical reality is I do want to have a reasonable level of material comfort. I don't know that it's a crazy obsession. I want to be a provider. My wife and I are both working. We're both providing a particular lifestyle. And to what degree am I limited in my passion to save the planet or some of my social causes? I've had to sacrifice. I've have to reduce them because I'm doing this. But while I'm doing this, I also have some superseding values that may put the whales second. And my family turns out to be first. So within the context of what you're doing, you have prioritized. I prioritized A, my role as a provider, B, my love of my family, 
and C, I'm doing a career which allows me to do the first two. While it may not be the save the whales, if we're overusing this, sorry about that. I think we're just using the metaphor generally. If I can't go out for the larger causes that I'm compelled about, I'm just living within the limits of being a human. But I am actually here in the present moment, and I have made decisions. Your decisions to be the podcast consultant correlate to not being stuck in the corporate environment being able to have some freedom. You've made a decision. I don't have a boss. I'm the boss. So you've put yourself into a lot better position than you may actually give yourself credit for. You have a level of freedom that people who are schlepping to work every day don't have. You know what I mean? Like, who's your boss? I am. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Yeah. If I work 70 or 80 hours a week, that's my choice. Nobody's pushing me. So there's freedom and autonomy. So clearly you value that freedom and that autonomy over the kind of money you might've been able to make in a big corporate job. So what I'm sensing is the value system that you have has priorities and I'm putting family and freedom first. And then when you do the work that you do, I think you probably bring a bit of your values around compassion and caring to the work. At least that's my experience when I worked with you, because I don't think we'd be here today if there wasn't something about you that I sense that I want. I want a relationship with my producer. I want a guy I care about. I want a guy I get to know about. And we can have the relationship over this coming year and people, our listeners were here that we get to know each other even better than we already do. But in the end, I think what you're doing is you have decided you have made trade-off decisions. And those are reflective of your values. So you haven't surrendered your values. You've reflected them. You've just prioritized them in a different way. The global causes that you have an appetite for, want to do, now is not the time. They are going to become second and third. But I don't think you've ever lost your passion for them whether it's clean air, climate, whatever, pick your social passion. You still have them, but the amount of time you can devote to them is limited by the practicalities of your work, your family, and your life. So then now the question becomes, how did I measure that life? That's correct. And here's what he says in the article very, very quickly. And encourages all of his students while they're getting their Harvard MBAs, which means they're going to be making 150 or more thousand bucks a year when they come out of school with lots of expectations, right? The one is first and foremost, relationships will always require your attention. If you want meaning and you want to measure your life, the first thing to measure is how well did I invest in maintain, cultivate, hold our relationships. Think about how many executives have missed family birthday parties, baseball games, sporting events, recitals. I'm just telling you, there are corporate jobs that the company and the stockholders and the market They are ahead of your family. Your job is first. If you want that job, you're going to make that trade-off. 
But even if you have that job, are you paying attention to your relationships? How important are they? What important work item should make a family relationship suffer? I can't find one yet. (laughs) I can't find one yet. And you probably shouldn't find one. (laughs) Well, I would say my time here and this therapy session is over and everybody listening is now required to sign a HIPAA agreement to protect my personal medical information. (laughs) Yeah. We didn't really get to the heart of the article. I mean, the lessons were one was relationships. Two was making sure you look at your family life as a job unto itself. I have tasks, I have responsibilities, and I have things I need to execute on. That's what my family is. So relationships globally is essential, and I got to devote time to them. Two, I have to focus on my family. It is as important as any job I have. And then his last item was about avoiding the trap of marginal thinking. It would take longer to explain it, but sometimes we spend more time at the edges of a situation than going to the heart of it. And he just doesn't want us wasting time on the edges. He wants us to focus and what is the heart of the issue. So let's stop there. We got long again, but hopefully the listeners didn't feel it was long and that we ran out of time too quickly. Well, and what I would say is for the listeners, maybe what we'll do this week is as Kevin sort of gives you some things to think about, Why don't you share with us either how you were measuring your life prior to listening to this episode and maybe how you have now adjusted how you will measure your life after reading the articles or links to the books that we'll have here in the show notes and on the website or just hearing this discussion between the two of us. If you do want to share how you measured your life either prior or today or after listening to this, how it's going to change, you can always do that at sheerclarity.com. Or email us directly, kevin at sheerclarity.com. Put how you measure your life, how will you measure your life, something like that in the subject line so we know exactly what it is that you're talking about. We'll be really fascinated to see what you have to say about that, how you are doing it differently. And we'll try to respond and maybe we'll do a little bonus and go over some of these things and add some extra perspective to what the audience has to say about that. But in the meantime, thank you, as always, for joining us here on Sheer Clarity. And if you haven't, please go to SheerClarity.com. There's show notes. There's subscribe buttons. There's ways to connect on social media. There's a host of really cool resources, links to articles and books and other great, great pieces of information that Kevin has cultivated over the years that we will be sharing over the course of this podcast and just other things that we think will be of value to you as you work to become the consummate leader by attraction. Again, it's all at sheerclarity.com. He is J. Kevin McHugh. I am Matthew Passy. We are excited. We will see you next week on Sheer Clarity. Mm-hmm.